Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be with you today. So back on the program today, we've brought uh, two familiar voices back on. We've got Chris and Clay. Uh, Chris and Clay, how are you guys doing? Hey, having a great time. Hey, Bill. Hey, Chris. Awesome. Glad to uh, glad to have you guys back on. This is going to be, I think, a really interesting episode. The first vision is going to be the topic today. It's it's one of the you know it's the precipice moment within the restoration, and and we've made it this foundational story and. And the three of us are going to hash a lot of that out, really hit on what's going on in these accounts and the history behind each, as well as a lot of the other events that are going on in the background and things to kind of think about. We we want to start off by just kind of framing this discussion and want to throw it out to you guys. We, we probably need to at least hit on why the First Vision is even, even important, why, why are we talking about it, what makes it really big in the news right now, what's going on and and maybe just uh, a feel from you guys on why this is such an important uh, story or historical moment uh, to try and grapple with within Mormonism. Well, doesn't uh, doesn't President Hinckley say that it's everything that our entire foundation rests and falls upon the account that Joseph gave? Yeah, he says it's either true or it's a fraud, and he paints it that black and white. And either this event occurred or it didn't. And if it didn't, he says in his own words, the church is a fraud. Well, that in of itself makes it kind of a kind of a big deal to talk about, doesn't it? Yeah, I think um, I'm not really sure why uh, some members look at it that way. I I can speculate on why President Hinckley said that in 2002. Maybe um, they think about it that way because the prophet said that that's how we should look at it. Uh, I don't I don't think we need to make you know put the stakes that high. I think uh, for some members uh, we don't have to be all in or all out, and everything doesn't need to to rest on this one first vision, you know, and well, I'm, I'm excited to point out some of these reasons. Uh, we, we you use the word we, I, the prophet said it, man, not, not we, he. The, the thinking has been done, hasn't it? I, I don't know. I don't know what the debate is. <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm with Clay. I mean, I certainly, I, I certainly recognize that we've got to have some middle ground. I think most members would see no middle ground. They would see this as a very black and white issue. Either Joseph saw God the Father and Jesus Christ in the grove, or he didn't, and, and that all of Mormonism's truth rests on that event. But I'm with you, Clay. I think as we go through this, we're going to find that there's a lot of room here to, to maybe say, yes, Joseph's interacting with the divine, but we don't know exactly what's going on. Well, let me, let me throw this out. If President Hinckley said that, we don't have anywhere where Joseph Smith, you know, he certainly never said you needed to believe him in his account of the first vision. Right. And that's interesting, right? I mean, during Joseph Smith's lifetime, it seems like the first vision is just not even even in his awareness of things to talk about as he's trying to, to put the restoration out there. You got right. that right. No member in the church in the 1830s would have ever heard of the first vision. I don't think we have any any place where 
anything is is taught publicly in the 1830s. I think doesn't David Whitmer talk about what are you talking about first vision stuff? I never heard about that. Right. There's there's really little evidence. Um, I'm reading here from an article, and, I, and the listeners should probably be aware. We've I think each of us have got stacks and stacks of just documents and papers around us to try and put this together. But there is an article written by James B. Allen, The Significance of Joseph Smith's First Vision in Mormon Thought. And he says there's little, if any, evidence. If he were telling it, no one seemed to consider it important enough to have recorded it at, at the time. He says the interest, rather, was in the Book of Mormon in the various angelic visitations connected with its origin. He even talks about the anti-Mormon writings, right? I mean, Chris, you're you're very familiar with E.B. Howe and his uh, Mormonism Unveiled and, and Philastrius Hurlbut going around collecting the affidavits. If I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's not a single thing in there about the first vision. No, um, no, it just wasn't uh, wasn't a topic that people discussed in the 1830s because Joseph didn't talk about it very often. But you would think, right, if he's if he's having the first vision and, and he's going back and telling some ministers and he tells you that there's a lot of persecution coming from this, that somebody in the Palmyra neighborhood would, would speak out to this, positive or negative, wouldn't you? Well, even as late as 1842, I mean, some of the most bitter uh, you know accusations of the church, there was no mention uh, made of the first vision. 1842, I mean, some of these anti-Mormon sources here. Yeah, there's several books. There's a book titled Delusions. Uh, again, no mention of the first vision. There is a uh, 1842 J.B. Turner publishes Mormonism in all ages, which also does not have a single thing about the first vision. And so whether it's people who are critical of Joseph or people who are on Joseph's side and in the church and, and, and faithful members, there's just zero discussion of it, um, like you say, in Joseph Smith's lifetime. So while you guys were talking, I ran to my bookshelf and grabbed a, a voice of warning, an old one. A first edition voice of warning is worth about 30 grand. This is a highly collectible book. The one I have in my hands is a fourth edition, 1854, uh, only worth about six or seven hundred dollars. This one's in pretty good shape. But what's so interesting about this book, next to the Book of Mormon, it's the most influential book in the 19th century as far as bringing people to the church as a gospel tool. And in no place in the book does Parley mention the first vision. A couple of the chapter headings, let me grab it up here. A couple of the chapter headings are uh, prophecy already fulfilled, fulfillment of prophecy yet in the future, the kingdom of God, the Book of Mormon, origin of the American Indians, resurrection of the saints, and the restoration of all things. But nowhere does he mention the first vision that Joseph Smith had. In, in the first, the first edition, Chris, is what year? 1837. 1837. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. No, I, I totally hear that. And I'm, I'm just like, I'm bewildered a little bit, like why it isn't showing up. And I think it's going to be interesting as we kind of go through this, what some of the reasons could be, why we simply do not have it, why it's just not there. And it, it, we ought to probably make, certainly validate that this is one of the issues that people struggle over. This is one of the, the top, you know, 11 or 12 Issues in the church that members are leaving over and losing faith over and, and, and their shelf and their testimony is just kind of crumbling. Um, so we certainly don't want to diminish the fact that this is a really important issue that a lot of people are, are kind of at least thinking about as they discover deeper history. So you guys think that's probably the onus behind the church releasing the first, the essay on the, on the first vision accounts it was because of that, how high, how high it is on people's lists of why they leave the church? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm with Clay. I mean, it's definitely the, the, 
the precipice for each of those essays is that those are those are issues people are thinking about. Things don't quite add up on a surface level, and and people are struggling with it. Um, it, it again, we're going to get off on a tangent here, but I, I struggle a little bit with that essay and the others because they they're not really at times addressing the real issue that people are struggling with. It almost kind of just sugarcoats a little bit. Acknowledges there's some mess, but kind of sugarcoats without really diving in. So let's. Um, and, and maybe you should note too that John DeLynn and his the Open Survey, um, the Open Stories Foundation did a survey where they went out and asked a bunch of Latter Day Saints, just threw out a survey and questioned a bunch of Latter Day Saints who had lost their testimonies, who had left the church, at least at least checked out in terms of testimony uh, of the faith and got their response. And it was again, it was on the list of eleven or twelve issues that that people are struggling with the most and why people leave the church. And uh, we probably got to jump into the 1838 account first and kind of set this up. And just to kind of lay out to the listener, I mean, this is the account we've all grown up with. This is the this is the story we've all heard. I joined the church as an as a older teenager, and I can, to this day, I don't have any papers in front of me. I could sit here and quote pieces and parts of that. I could tell you, you know, during this time of great excitement, my mind's called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. This is Joseph speaking. You know, and then we've got this, I saw a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose, who defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name and said, pointing to the other, hear him. And, and so we have these things, like all of us as Latter-day Saints can remember bits and pieces of that. We know the story. Um, should we hit maybe just a few of the main points of the 1838 account, things that stick out in your mind that are going on in that story that we want to kind of set as a backdrop against the rest of these? Sure. Uh, two people. God speaks, says, listen to his son. Um, you know, the Both personages tell Joseph that you know all the churches are corrupt. He describes them in physical terms, uh, uses physical words to describe them, flesh and bone, resurrected beings. What else? I think it's also intimated that both beings show up at kind of the same time. Like they both appear... In the same instance, which, which as we get into it, that'll be important to note. Yeah, I, I would offer, um, out of all the accounts of the first vision, to me, it sounds the least like Joseph Smith talking. It sounds the most polished. It sounds the most reviewed. It sounds the most thought through. Um, it uses big words, right? Doesn't he use some big words? I mean, Bill just read them. Yeah, it just, I mean, it's not the brother Joseph that I, that I have, you know, that I've come to love over the years. It just, it just doesn't sound like him. Yeah. And, and we'll hit on, when we get to the 1832 account, we'll hit on a little bit why the 1838 account perhaps doesn't even have the voice of Joseph within it. Um, it's a note too. I mean, Joseph in the 1838 account talks about the religious revival. I don't know if you said this, Clay, or not, but he, uh, Joseph says he's 14 years old when it happens. So there's some of that as well. Um, there's this idea that when Joseph goes home, he tells his mother that, you know, Presbyterianism isn't true. Um, all enough as well, Mom, but I know for myself that Presbyterianism isn't true. That kind of just brushing his mother off, but making it clear that he's learned something that's added to to his spiritual knowledge. The 1838 account is the very first time that Joseph officially wants to put the first vision out there. It actually is in a document that is intended to be public and for the history of the church. You know, I think you and Clay are getting ahead of yourself here. Why don't we go back to the beginning on the very first account that we that we have, which is that 1832 account, 12 years after the first vision. You guys cool with that? And so with that, let's jump back to that 1832, Chris. And why don't you set the scene? Tell us what's going on, kind of the background of what, uh, why Joseph's writing this and what's um, what's going on there. 
I will set the scene for the 1832 account. But but before I I hop into it, can we all agree on how many accounts there are? Should we should we try to come to a, a consensus? Um, I would say that it's there's probably nine accounts, maybe four good ones. What do you guys? Where are we at on that number? So I'm only aware of four first-hand accounts. The 1832, the 1835, the 1838 slash 1839 we just talked about, and the 1842, which was the Wentworth letter. And I'm aware of, you know, nine or so second-hand accounts. Are you talking, Chris, about eight or eight or nine uh, first-hand ones? No, I'm saying that uh, I agree with you. There's four first-hand accounts. And then beyond that, there's probably, what, five other you know, reasonable second-hand, third-hand accounts? I think there's more than that. Nine, ten, eleven. I mean, I'm, but I think these people just mentioned it. They weren't full-on second-hand accounts, right? The three of us can't agree on how many accounts there are. Well, I mean, what do you call an account? If, if one of the accounts has, like, just the word Joseph's Visions, does that count as a second-hand account? I don't know, because man. Because that's what one of them is. <laughs> that's why okay. we should just focus on the first-hand accounts. Okay, so we're going to just do the four first-hand accounts tonight. Sure, with a, with a, if you don't mind, maybe just a brief mention of the second-hand. In 1830, I, this I just love. I just love this history. I just just I love it. Been studying it my whole life. I love it. I love it to death. Um, this account of his first vision is my favorite out of all of them. I'm glad I get to talk about this one because this is the one I'm the most passionate about. This is the one that speaks to me. This is the one that sounds the most authentic and sincere out of all the other accounts. So Joseph Smith, 1830, is given a uh, revelation when the day the church is organized. I believe it's section 21 of the Doctrine and Covenants where he is set, he is told by God to keep a record. He waits two more years before he starts keeping a record. Don't you guys think that's fascinating? If God told you, Bill, you know, you should keep a journal, Bill. What, don't you think you'd kind of get on that pretty quick? I'd be on it uh, probably 20 minutes later, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Joseph waits two years, which indicates to me a couple of really cool things. He's not into journal keeping. He doesn't obviously like to, to write and to, and to do this type of thing. It was probably not easy for him. Um, not something he just was natural at. But 1832 comes along and he decides he needs to start. So he starts his journal, and he also writes down his history for the first time, or this this account of his first vision in 1832. So we have a journal where he starts, and we have his account of the of what he saw in 1820. And there's a couple of interesting things in here. Um, it's probably more interesting of what's not in the 1832 account. For example, Joseph does not see two personages. He sees only one, and he re, he re, uh, refers to him as the Lord. But the Lord in this account identifies himself as uh, Christ, the one that was crucified. So we have Jesus Christ appearing to him, although he refers to him as the Lord. I like how in his account, the 1832 account, that he says that about the age of 12 years, my mind became seriously impressed with regard to all the important concerns for the welfare of my immortal soul, which led me to search, searching the scriptures, believing as I was taught that they contain the word of God. I love the fact that he says that he was 12 when he became seriously impressed. Uh, you know, my son's 12 right now. It just seems like a, a really deep topic for a 12-year-old to be thinking about. Some other great things in it. Therefore, I cried unto the Lord for mercy. For there was none else to whom I could go to obtain mercy. And the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness. And while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord in the 16th year of my age, 
a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me. And I was filled with the spirit of God and the Lord opened up the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord. That just rings very genuine to me. It sounds a lot like how he spoke, how he how he wrote when he wasn't speaking uh, publicly. It sounds very personal and it sounds to me like it wasn't really meant to be public. Sounds like we're reading right from his journal. And it, and it sounds like a genuine expression of faith. Like, like you guys are pointing out, this, this 1838 account just sounds really scripted, but this one just sounds really natural. And, and this idea of being in his 16th year, we probably should note that, um, the scholars have pointed out that the six here is, is not real legible. It may actually be a five, and if it and if it does say his fifteenth year, then we're talking about the age of fourteen, and so there's no contradiction between the eighteen thirty two account and the eighteen thirty eight account in terms of age. I, I know Clay, you've you've done some reading on some of the other things going on contemporary with Joseph, some of the other folks who who are having visionary experiences. Do you have a couple of those stories handy that you could just share with us, like other people who are seeing visions or or the things that are going on that Joseph would either A, be aware of, or it would just be like in his culture that people are having these kinds of experiences? Sure. I think I think the important thing in this account is Joseph's uh, motive. He was going to seek remission of his sins, right? He wanted his sins forgiven him. And that was pretty popular in the Protestant um, um, idea and spiritual um kind of awakening that Joseph was part of, right? A lot of people were seeking forgiveness of their sins, and that's what a lot of these guys that had claimed to see God and Christ. Um, there's this guy, Norris Stearns, in 1815, published an account of two beings who appeared to him. One was God, my maker, almost in bodily shape like a man. His face was, if, was as, it, as it were a flame of fire, and his body as it had been a pillar and a cloud. Below him stood Jesus Christ, my Redeemer, uh, the Wayne Sentinel um, published Eight of Wild's Vision, 1823, that all denominations were corrupt. 1826, a Palmyra preacher claims that he saw Christ descend in a glare of brightness, exceedingly exceeding tenfold the brilliancy of the meridian sun. So these, there's three right around the same time Joseph would have been recording this that talked about seeing... Um, Personages of the divine, right, of God. Listen to how similar Elias Smith's vision from 1816 sounds. This is a quote from him. I went into the woods. A light appeared from heaven. My mind seemed to rise in that light to the throne of God and the Lamb. Uh, pretty similar. Went into the woods. Light appears above him. The thing that stands out most to me in the 1832 account is this is where Joseph uses the word vision. Um, Chris, Chris, if you kept reading... Uh, let's see. Um, let's see. Uh, Christ is talking to him. My soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy, and the Lord was with me, but could find none that would believe the heavenly vision. Nevertheless, I pondered these things in my heart. I think that's where the word vision um, comes out, and that's kind of a sticking point for me is the word vision. And so it's kind of neat to go through these different accounts. Why is the word vision a sticking point for you? Um, mainly because I don't think we ever talk about it. The idea that the, the word vision, uh, we've always kind of, in, in 18, 
38 to 42 account, Wentworth letter, Joseph kind of goes over more of a specific uh, encounter, a visit, uh, a meeting with God and, and Christ. And he had developed the the narrative that he saw them flesh and bone, um, resurrected beings. And I don't think uh, that was present in the 1832 or when we started talking about the 1835 account. It was more of a heavenly vision. Um, so I'd like to kind of talk about that if you guys guys want to. The idea yeah, you that, have. Go ahead. Well, I think I think it's one possibility that that Joseph. Um, I don't want to say it was a dreamlike trance, but I know we have a lot of other recordings of seeing things with their spiritual eyes, the three witnesses, eight witnesses. Some of them had mentioned seeing the plates and the angel with their spiritual eyes. And I think we could apply that, especially to the 1832 account. Um, and I don't think it's that off base to say it was exactly what he said it was, a vision. He didn't call it a first encounter, a first visit, vision. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to push back on you a little bit on this. Um, he I knew you would. I do, he doesn't refer to it as a dream. I'm just. I'm thinking as a a member of the church, we don't speak about Joseph's first vision as a, as a dream or as you know, use his spiritual eyes to see something different. We we tell it. We contemplate this first vision as an actual vision, as he's actually seeing something. In a visit, in a visionary experience, he never says, "I used my spiritual eyes." He doesn't uh, equivocate on any other time and any other any other telling of these accounts. You have Paul, right, in the New Testament, when he gets caught up in a in a vision, he says, "Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know." And I think that there at least has to be some acknowledgement that even if Joseph perceived it as a physical experience, doesn't necessarily make it so. It doesn't necessarily have to be a physical vision. One of the other things that catches my eye, whether it's the 1838 account or the 1832 account or 35 or 42, we get to a point within Mormon theology where Joseph is adamant that because of this vision, Joseph knows that God the Father and Jesus Christ are are two corporal beings, two physical beings. And yet none of these visions does he he reach out and touch these guys. So just because they appear to be physical beings, I don't think necessarily makes it so. And so I'm with Clay. I think there's room here to say, you know, he closed his eyes and, and God caused some kind of sleep to come upon him and he has either a dream or a, uh, a visionary manifestation in his head. But to him, it was really real. Come on, guys. You've, you guys have seen the video. No, you've seen the video. His eyes are open. So that's what we're going off. We're going off of the uh, the, the the truth restored video that the, the missionary show. <laughs> I'm just saying that we don't have any other point where Joseph is saying, where where he equivocates, where he gives us room to say, well, it must have been something else, or it could have been a dream or a trance or anything else. He doesn't doesn't give us that. Okay, Chris. Later in his life, Joseph taught that we could all see Jesus Christ, right? Did he Mm -hmm. intend that we could all see him in the flesh or in a heavenly vision? I have to jump in because, I mean, I think the teaching is pretty solid that Joseph's taught that in the scriptures and in his own words through scripture that that no man can see God in the flesh. Was it uh, he meant more of a heavenly vision? And, Chris, I could pull out the, what, 1828 Webster's Dictionary. What is vision? Noun, right? right. So he would have been used The dictionary same- Joseph would be aware of, you know, because he's got Webster <laughs> sitting in his show. library with a view of the Hebrews in the late war. <laughs> it was it was published up in New England, so this would have been one he would have been using in 1832. Yeah, Revelation. Right. I'll, I'll read I'll read the definition of vision in scripture. Yeah, 
In Scripture, a revelation from God, an appearance or exhibition of something supernaturally presented to the minds of the prophets, uh, something imagined to be seen, though not real. Uh, those are just something imaginary, the production of fancy. Um, I think a heavenly vision is exactly what he saw. If it makes you guys feel better, we can change the phrase first vision to first encounter, or first experience then. Does that make you guys feel better? Well, we all leaped to that as a church. I think we jumped to that because that's the word he chose was vision. But at some point we applied the idea, and I think it was Joseph himself two years before he was killed, where he he he, um, he uh, gave it much more of a physical, um, made it more of a physical encounter. But I think after we talk through some of these accounts, I think we'll get to the point where we realize why he may have um, developed a more complete story. Well, we can move on, but I, I'm still going to push back on you guys about trying to change this from a vision to something else. Um, just reading from the 1838 account towards the end, he said, When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back looking up into heaven. Some few days after I had had this vision, I happened to be in the company of one of the Methodist preachers who were very active in the before-mentioned religious excitement. And conversing with him on the subject of religion, I took occasion to give him an account of the vision which I had had. I was greatly surprised at his behavior. He treated my communication not only lightly, but with great contempt, saying it was all of the devil, that there was no such thing as visions or revelations in these days, and that all things had ceased with the apostles, and that there never would be any more of them. Are, are you arguing, or Chris, are you making the argument that that by the word vision, we're left to only believe it's a physical manifestation rather than something visionary in his head. Like where Lehi says, I dreamed a dream. You're, you're, you, you want to hold Joseph's use of the word vision to a physical event rather than possibly something in his head? I'm saying that it was, as we teach it in our church, it was a physical event. Yes. Lehi was asleep when he had his dream. That's a different connotation than a vision in the middle of the day where you are conscious. But what about where Joseph says he came to? It's almost like he wakes up, right? The the very beginning phrase you used when you just read the quote you just did, doesn't it say like when everything ended, like I came to and... Lying on my back. Right. It's almost like he woke up and, and heads back to the house. And to me, I think there's room to see this as a visionary experience in his mind and not as a physical appearance of heavenly beings, but but certainly real enough to him that he would be left wondering. Um I would allow that there's some interpretive wiggle room here, but not much. A vision's a specific thing. Having a dream or having a uh, uh, something to play with your conscience or something like that is completely different. So I'm saying there's a little wiggle room, but not much. That's how much ground I'll give on that. Hey, Chris, let me let me jump in. Yeah. we got to finish this up. Do you think Moroni was a vision or an encounter? Because in the same 1832 journal... If you go to the next page, he describes the encounter with Moroni, um, 17 years of age. Lord showed unto me a heavenly vision. It was by night. Uh, you got a little bit more going on there. He's got like uh, seven or eight brothers and sisters in bed there. It's in, upstairs in his house. I mean, that's, <laughs> there's sisters in the bed now, too. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on there. It's a tiny house. I've been in that house. It's a tiny house. Um, so if that's the same experience he had in the Grove... I mean, I already, in my mind, see it as a as a as a different experience. Okay, the whole house would have woke see, up, man. I'm the exact opposite in my head. Like I'm, I would much rather picture the first vision as a visionary manifestation in his mind that almost almost like a dream, 
but that is super realistic. And then I see Moroni as, you know, yeah, these kids don't wake up for some reason, but, but Moroni shows up in the room and it's a physical appearance of an angel and, and not just, uh, not just something he's dreaming or, because he's so tired in the morning. It's not like he's just sound asleep and having a dream. To me, that's a physical event. I, to, to me, I'm just twisting these uh, 180 the way you are. Uh, well, so are there any other uh, contradictions in the 1832 account? What other things are going on in this one that, that need to be brought out? In the 32, he didn't. Uh, Satan didn't uh, have any influence over him. Right. There's no Lucifer at all in this vision, which which seems odd because it's such an important part of the 1838 account, and yet here we don't have any. You know, here's Joseph just writing his journal, sharing his own personal experience with himself. And there's just nothing in here about the adversary. Nothing about the other churches being corrupt. Just it, it didn't sound like he had taken the time to write down additional details, or he decided to wait till later to bring those out. So when did we, you know, if this was in his handwritten journal, when did it see the light of day? When did, when did we hear about this 1832 account, Chris? Uh, well, that's an interesting story. We have had the account in our archives. People referred to it through the 20th century, but at some point in the 40s or 50s, somebody rips out the 1832 account from Joseph's journal. It's it's an incredible uh, thing to imagine, but somebody, and I, I can't imagine who, but they they're in the archives, right? And they see Joseph's journal. They're reading the they're reading the account, and eh, I don't know if we need all these other accounts. So they just get the get the book there and just. But just rip it, son of a just rip it right out. Who the hell would have? Who would have thought that that was? Who had access to this? Who had access to this? Uh, we we know. I don't know if we can get uh, Fair Mormon or anyone to admit it, but I think we all know who did it. Hmm. We we actually know quite a bit of this story, Chris and Clay. This is. If anybody listens to this podcast, if for no other reason than to know the background of the story, and we probably, we probably should share the story, and then like you point out, Chris, let's, let's share what Fair Mormon has to say about it. The Joseph Smith papers recently come out with their sharing the pictures. In fact, on this episode, you'll see a link to the photographic image of the 1832 account. If you zoom in and go to the inside edge of the, the papers, you'll find that about the first half inch is a little different shade, and the ink is a little more faded, it seems. And it's actually because that's where the scotch tape is, that, <laughs> that, that these pages have been put back into the journal. I'm, I'm looking at this, Bill. I think it's page six has the most blatant tape job. I mean, there's a piece of tape here that has got to have someone's thumbprint on it, too. It looks like a scotch tape. It looks like a Band-Aid that's been taped on. And I think that somebody cut it out rather than ripped it out. When you see the places where the tape didn't hold, that's a really clean cut in those pages. The story is just fascinating. You're right, Chris. This is the, the way this is taped in. It's obvious that these were cut really cleanly, and the person who did it did it with a razor blade. Here's what we know: we know that in 1910, Joseph Fielding Smith is called as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. He becomes an apostle. His, his father is Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church. His grandfather is Hiram Smith, who is martyred in the Carthage jail, brother of the prophet Joseph. And so this guy has a lot of reason to be invested in not having Joseph Smith's name sullied in, in the mud over, over these discrepancies. And so what happens is 1921, 
Joseph Fielding Smith, who's already an apostle, is called to be the church historian. We know for a fact that between 1921 and 1935 is when this account is removed from Joseph Smith's journal. Uh, again, it is cut out cleanly with a razor blade, almost made to completely be taken out without anybody knowing it's missing. We also know that it was stored in the church historian's safe and not the first presidency's vault. We, we also know a little bit about the background of how it became known. There was a, I think he's a member of the 70, his name was Levi E. Young, and somehow he catches wind that there's this other account. So he goes to the church historian, Joseph Fielding Smith, and says, uh, you know, hey, I've heard something about this account in 1833. He gets his year wrong. Joseph Fielding Smith then shows it to him, but but counsels him to say nothing about it, not to give any of the details on it. <laughs> but here's what but here's what Levi does. Levi goes now to a amateur historian, Lamar Peterson, and he says, hey, um, I'm not supposed to say much, but there's a really strange 1832 account. And he actually, actually gets his year wrong again. He says 1833 account of the first vision. And Lamar Peterson then meets up with the Tanners, Sandra and Gerald, who write, uh, who write, uh, what was the name of the book, Chris? Shadow and Reality. Shadow, Shadow and Reality. One of the, one of the greatest, uh, most important uh, anti-Mormon works that were written, um, here in the, in the 20th century. And, Lamar Peterson goes to the Tanner's little cottage house where they sell books out of, knocks on the door and says, hey guys, I've heard that there's this strange 1832 account. So the Tanners are now making it public that they know something about this. And Joseph Fielding Smith doesn't want to be caught having done this. So he goes into his vault in, uh, in the church historian's office, gets these, there's six pages, or there's, um, Six pages, which means three leaves of pages. There's there's three actual pieces of paper writing on both sides. It's six pages total. And he then goes back to the the journal it came out of, gets a roll of scotch tape, and and tapes these pages back in as if nothing ever went missing. <laughs> <laughs> but then he goes one step further. He then finds a guy, an amateur, uh, a, a student in the historian field at BYU. And he kind of like nudges this guy, gets him aside and says, this guy's name is Paul Cheeseman or Chessman and says, Hey, Paul, here's what's going on. Uh, the Tanners are about ready to come out with them revealing that we have the 1832 account and we've never talked about it. Would you mind writing your thesis statement on this 1832 account? That way you make it public before they do. And it sounds like we had this thing all along. And so he actually writes this paper on the accounts of the first vision includes the 1832 account, even though it only got taped back in the book like two months earlier. What year was that? 60s? Was this the 60s? So it says in, in early 1964, Peterson told Gerald and Sandra Tanner about a strange account of the first vision. Uh, Joseph Fielding Smith did not know exactly what Levi Edgar Young had told Lamar Peterson, and he refused to let the Tanner see the 1832 history. About the same time, Joseph Fielding Smith relinquished the three leaves of the excised 1832 history from his private custody within his office safe and transferred it back to the regular church historian's collection. Then he authorized Earl E. Olson, his assistant church historian, to show the newly available leaves to Paul Chessman or Cheeseman. And then it says Cheeseman prepared a typescript in his 1965 BYU master's thesis on Joseph Smith's visions 
Later that same year, Gerald and Sandra Tanner were first to publish the text of the 1832 account using Chessman's imperfect transcript. Four years later, Dean Jesse, who we all should know, Dean Jesse published his important article in Brigham Young University Studies with an accurate transcript of the text. It just, it's, I mean, you cannot play this, this story any more crazy. It's, and again, if the listener goes and types on the link and clicks it, you can, you can see the photographic images of these and you can see the scotch tape in the picture of these, these three leaves or six pages. That's crazy stuff. You can say what you want about Mormonism, man, but it is absolutely interesting. You know what I mean? This is an interesting church. Yeah, he's either, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith was the most loyal guy in the world, right? Couldn't have, couldn't have the Smith name being dragged through the mud. I just, I'm surprised he just didn't burn it. You know, if he was, if he really wanted to silence it. Guys, I know, I know you're chuckling. I know you think that the story of Joseph Fielding Smith doing this with, with the 1832 account is hilarious. And I, and I grant you, as you say, Chris, this is, this is what makes Mormonism interesting, but it goes further than that. Like, even today, we know all those facts, and yet when somebody asks, say, Fair Mormon, what is the reality of what happened? Let me let me show you what they say on their website. It says, um, the heading for the section is, Joseph Fielding Smith tears out the 1832 first vision. Fair Mormon account. Here's their words. It is not known who removed the pages from the book or why, nor is it known when or why they were restored to the book. From history, circa summer 1832... On the Joseph Smith Papers site, they say photocopy and microfilm images of the book, as well as an inspection of the conservation work now present in the volume, indicate that the text block separated from the binding at some point. Almost like, they almost want to imply like it happened naturally or something. Also, the initial three leaves containing the history were excised from the volume. The eight inscribed leaves in the back of the volume may have been cut out at the same time. So there's so wait a minute now there's that means there's eight more pages that are still missing. <laughs> so I want to know what's on those pages, right? Probably just the grocery list, man. Just probably some doodles by Joseph. <laughs> so so the eight inscribed leaves in the back of the volume, which is sixteen pages, guys. Not just not just eight pages. That's eight leaves. Sixteen pages are uh, leaves in the back of the volume may have been cut out at the same time. Manuscript evidence suggests that these excisions took place in the mid-20th century. A tear on the third leaf, which evidently occurred during its excision, was probably mended at the time. The tear was mended with clear cellophane tape, which was invented in 1930. The three leaves of the history certainly had been removed by 1965 when they were described as cut out, although they were archived, excuse me, they were archived together with the letter book. The size and paper stock of the three excised leaves match those of the other leaves in the book. Also, the cut and tear marks, as well as the inscriptions in the gutters of the three excised leaves, match those of the remaining leaf stubs, confirming their original location in the book. The three leaves were later restored to the volume, apparently in the 1990s. This restoration was probably part of a larger conservation effort that took place in which the entire volume was rebound, including binding the formerly loose index of letters. The first gathering, which contains the history, was slightly trimmed in connection with this conservation work. The volume shows marked browning, brittleness, and wear. It is listed in Nauvoo, Illinois, in early Salt Lake City, Utah inventories made by the church historian's office 
as well as the 1973 register of the Joseph Smith collection indicating continuous institutional custody. So I give you all that to simply say, even Fair Mormon acknowledges these things were cut out, even though they don't want to make the leap to who it was or for what reason. And it is interesting they also note that there's 16 more pages of material that whoever cut out those, that the first vision account of 1832 also felt the need that for some reason this <laughs> section should also be removed, which makes you wonder what's on that. Yeah. Do we know at what part um, of his life he would have written those last four, sorry, eight pages? Like, could we make a, an assumption of what was maybe on there? Was he talking about polygamy at the time? So maybe he had eight crazy pages? Ooh, that's a good <laughs> question, Clay. Eight crazy I mean, pages? Ooh. Man, if I had 16. a mic, if someone took a magnifying glass at some of the documents I've finagled in my life, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm I can't believe trying it. to figure out how we can. Can we blame this on ordained women somehow? Is there a way to? <laughs> is, is, Man, <laughs> we've, we've all doctored documents, all of us, I'm sure, at some point. Oh, it's, just, it's interesting. Eight leaves, 16 pages at the end of the book. And like you say, Clay, is this polygamy? Is this Joseph? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, is it, is it just his 1832 journal? Does it go on till 1840? Does he have the same journal throughout his life? I, I don't know, but we are left wondering something's out there. My, my friends, something's out there. It, and, and a couple other things too. I don't think the 1832 account would be an issue in our minds if it wasn't for the Book of Mormon. I mean, if the Book of Mormon doesn't, the first edition doesn't have a Trinitarian view that is edited over and over and over again. There's a few adjustments made in, the, in like the 1835, I think, is maybe when the second edition comes out. Uh, Chris, you would know that probably better than I. 1837, in Kirtland, 1837. Okay, so 1837, the second one comes out. It's got some edits. but And then by the third edition, I mean, there's just a whole load of things that kind of correct um, the idea of this, this Trinitarian view being kind of softened to reflect more of two separate beings. And... And I just think if, if the Book of Mormon comes out, first edition, with God the Father and Jesus Christ being talked about separately, then I don't even think we're talking about the 1832 account today. We would make room that this is based on Joseph's audience. He's, he's catering this to a, to a certain people. He's writing to himself and he only wants to cover the most important points. I mean, it just doesn't seem like it would be that big of a deal. Your, your guys' thoughts on that perspective? That's a good point. That's a good point, Bill. It's a really good point. Yeah. And the other thing we should throw out, recently Richard Bushman was asked to comment. He was asked a question by a friend. Let me let me read this story because I think this is just beautiful pertaining to the 1832 account. Bushman uh, says, I've read through the imp- – and this is – he was on a uh, – he was on Reddit doing an AMA, which is Ask Me Anything. Basically, the any of the – a scholar can go on this website, say, hey, I'm here. I'm here for 24 hours. Ask anything you want to. And people can just type in their questions. And then that person throughout the day will stop in and, and just answer each of these questions as they're, as they're being thrown out there. And this is afterward. This is what he says. He says, I've read through the imposing array of questions posed over the past week and hardly know how to begin. They are pointed, relevant, sincere, and deserve more of a reply than I can possibly manage. I will do what I can during our open chat hour on Monday. But for now, I would like to say something about my beliefs of, as I have been currently voicing them. A few weeks ago, during one of the seminars that Terrell and Fiona Givens and I have been offering for people, working through their doubts and questions, an old friend sat me down during the lunch break, looked me in the eye, and he asked, Richard, do you believe Joseph saw the father and the son in the grove? I said, of course, and the moment passed, but his question lingered on and moved me to think about, to think again about what I do believe about the founding stories. 
I'm very much impressed by Joseph Smith's 1832 history account of his early visions. This is the one partially written in his own hand and the rest dictated to Frederick G. Williams. I think it is more revealing than the official account, presumably written in 1838 and contained in the Pearl of Great Price. We don't know who wrote the 1838 account. Joseph's journal indicates that he, Sidney Rigdon, and George Robinson collaborated on beginning the history in late April, but we don't know who actually drafted the history. It is a polished narrative, which we've got, which we've talked about, guys. It's a polished narrative. But unlike anything Joseph ever wrote himself, the 1832 history we know is his because of the handwriting. It comes rushing forth from Joseph's mind in a gush of words and seems artless, artless and uncalculated. A flood of raw experience. I think this account has the marks of an authentic visionary experience. There is the distance from God, the perplexity for yearning for answers, the perplexity, and then the experience itself, which brings intense joy, followed by fear and anxiety. Can he deal with the powerful force he has encountered? Is he worthy and able? It is a classic announcement announcement of a prophet's call, and I find it entirely believable. It seems to me, guys, like Richard Bushman is saying, look, I understand the 1838 account is out there. I know it's the official one, but... I'm not certain who frames that narrative, and I'd actually place more trust in the 1832 account. Thoughts from you guys? Mm. Bushman said it excellent, right? This, uh, 1832 is where it's at. It's really Joseph, it's him speaking, it's his handwriting. That's what he saw. Man, I, I, it's just beautiful. Very well said. Um, exactly how I've felt about the 1832 account. The, uh, when I, I, I guess I would add that I'm, had we known about it, I can't help but wonder if it wouldn't be our official account. To me, it should be. It's, it's so well said and so well articulated. And Bushman did a, couldn't have said it better. Yeah, I agree, guys. I, it kind of makes me wonder why the, uh, theology was developed into separate personages and, uh, having to have two there present. That's why the 1835 account is kind of cool because, there are two people there, um, but the focus is on the Lord. Yeah, let's um, let's do that. Let's jump into the 1835 account, which which in many ways is a bridge between this 32 and 38. Clay, why don't you uh, why don't you run us through that? Some of what's going on here. All right, uh, November 1835, Kirtland. Joseph is in Kirtland. This is also from his journal uh, that is part of the Joseph Smith papers. But at this point, he had a scribe. Um, Let's see, his scribe, uh, Warren Parrish, was his scribe just for a couple months. In the, the end of 1835, he got sick and then turned it, o- turned it over to the, the most popular scribe, that Sylvester Smith. Um, okay, Joseph Smith uh, gets a knock on the door from this guy. Uh, he's, he describes him as a tall, slender, gray-bearded, strange visitor who uh, called himself Joshua, the Jewish minister, right? I mean, it's weird-looking. Green trench coat, black fur hat. When he would speak, he closed his eyes and scowled at, at whoever he was speaking at. Uh, just a strange, strange bird. They hung out and talked all day, right? You guys have heard this story. You've read this story. He hung out, talked with this guy all day, had some of the other saints over. You can imagine it. Staying in Joseph, Joseph and Emma's home. Spent the night with them. Had dinner probably. Spent, spent the night with them. <clears throat> uh, probably all shared that one, uh, you know, outhouse, bathroom, whatever they had, you know, bumping into each other. So you're telling me you're letting some guy, wait, hold on. You're letting some guy in a green coat with a fur hat 
who's tall and slender and closes his eyes when he talks. You're letting him use your bathroom. <laughs> That's how they rolled back then, man. I can't imagine good thing, it. Good thing wanna, that thing was outside, right? You almost wanted the guy to go use your restroom. Like, hey, man, just step out, man. Go ahead and do it. Yeah, Joseph Joseph wasn't always the best judge of uh, judge of people, you know what I mean? He liked everybody. Yeah, you got uh, Bennett in Nauvoo, right? Yeah. So the next morning, this is when it gets exciting. And the only reason why I tell this story is because it, it adds some pretext to what Joseph shares in his journal later that night or the next day or whatever. Uh, Joshua tells Joseph, you know, probably, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm actually Matthias, you know, the apostle chosen to replace Judas from the original 12 apostles. I'm resurrected. His spirit is resurrected in me. So hold on, guys. This is where it gets crazy, right? <laughs> And uh, he told him his spirit was resurrected in in me and that, uh, you know, he believed that eternal life involves that, uh, you know, that migration of souls from father to son. Joseph probably figured this guy out pretty quick after this guy started speaking like this and um, told him his doctrine was of the devil. And Joseph's own words in his journal later says, I cast out the devil in bodily shape. So basically saying this guy was the devil, right, and cast him out, cast this devil out of this guy. It seems like Joshua, the Jewish minister, also later claims that uh, Joseph had the devil in him as well. Are they both getting out each other as having the devil? Yeah, a little did. There were rumors that Joseph uh, had converted uh, Joshua, the Jewish minister, to Mormonism. But, yeah, as you point out, Chris, it sounds like like, uh, the two of them ended not too happy with each other. Yeah, he would have been a great convert. In fact, we I think we have some (laughs) members right now, members of the church now kind of like that. I want you to go to China and preach the gospel. (laughs) (laughs) exactly but hey he stayed another night with joseph that was after joseph had cast the devil out only stay one more night so this guy not only this guy not only uses your bathroom he sleeps in your bed (laughs) (laughs) oh man so later he uh you know has warren parish write this down and uh so this is where joseph had in his journal had said i had talked to this guy, this Robert Matthews. It turns out this guy was Robert Matthews. He was a wanted man. Actually, he had served some time for beating up his daughter. Uh, some people thought he had murdered somebody. He was able to get that charge. He was able to uh, get convicted of something else and kind of just a lone wolf roaming around, right, trying to swindle people. So going to the the part where he talks about the first vision, uh, the, the parts that – are slightly different uh, than the 1832 account is that um, he says that this is the first time where he, he mentions that Satan had had been there. He says, for the first time, the place above stated uh, or in other words, I made a fruitless attempt to pray. My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that it could not utter. I heard a noise behind me like some person walking towards me. I strove again to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw near. I sprung up on my feet, looked around, but saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. Uh, I kneeled again, but my, my mouth was opened and my tongue liberated, and I called on the Lord. So that was uh, uh, portrayed in the famous video, right? So the first part where he talks about Satan. Uh, I called on the Lord in mighty prayer, pillar of fire above my head. It presently rested upon me my head and filled me with joy unspeakable a personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame which was spread all around and yet nothing consumed 
another personage soon appeared, like unto the first. So you got two two personages on that one. Uh, he said unto me, thy sins are forgiven. He testified unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So his sins are forgiven, similar to the 1832 account. He adds a second person in this one. And then the the one most critics talk about is, I saw many angels in this vision. I was about 14 years old when I received this first communication. Uh, when I saw... when. When I was about 17 years old, I saw another vision of angels in the night. So he's talking later about, about Moroni. But um, what do you guys think? Angels, two people, Satan. It's it's certainly different, right? I mean, you you have this for whatever reason. I mean, we can we can sit and talk about the reasons why these differences are there, but there's certainly some evolution on some level that Joseph is at the very minimum feeling safer to share more, and at and at most. As he, if you want to paint the picture of him being a fraud, his theology is evolving, and so he needs the story to match with it. Exactly. And you know, even going to the Satan thing, he doesn't mention, he doesn't suppose it's Satan. He just says someone was, you know, my my tongue was swollen in my mouth, uh, I couldn't speak, and I heard noises behind me. But he's in the woods, you know, trees falling, a branch falling down, right? So it's not very clear that that's what he was referring to do you guys agree or disagree i think it's interesting that this is the first time he brings a, a adversarial experience into his into the that precedes the vision and he's telling it to a guy that he later cast the devil out of it's kind of a i think it's an interesting that's tie to make. exactly why you kind of need that story and context of his last two days he spent with a dude that he thought was the devil, right? The devil was inside him. So he's kind of got that in his mind for the last couple of days. Hey, Satan can influence people, can be inside them. They, he has a lot of power. And then when he's recalling the events of 1820 for his journal, he ties the two together. I think this is exactly why members need context. They need to go to the source. They need to read the different accounts so that they can understand where Joseph's mind was when he was writing this down or dictating it to a scribe. I think it's awesome. Right. And I, and I think too, like you're saying, Clay, we should acknowledge that he's, he's sharing his first vision story with someone who he would perceive as adversarial. And, and that may shape the way he's telling his story. He's also probably at least thinking about the fact that whatever this guy hears, you know, Joseph needs on at least some of these points to be more pointed maybe than what he was in the 1832 account, because this guy, he's trying to set this guy straight on some level as well. Right. So uh, is there, for you, Clay, is there big enough differences between the 32 and the 35 account to 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 get nervous? And do you see big differences between the 35 account and the 38 account that, that make, you, um, make you uncomfortable? There's a bigger leap between 35 and 38. The 32 and the 35, there's not that big of a leap. I mean, maybe two personages, but it's one's more of a kind of a fiery pillar that he, he imagines is God. And the second one looks kind of similar, but is away from the pillar of fire. Um, who he, I guess, assumes is Christ or he says is Christ. The angels, you know, I know that the 35 account has a lot of critics because of the idea that he saw a lot of angels. <clears throat> but if we go back to the heavenly vision, the idea of a heavenly vision, and it's not as clear as watching a movie or watching, you know, someone speak right in front of you or come down 
you know, descend from the sky right in front of you. Um, then I would, I would give them a little room to perceive light or perceive, um, fire or God's, uh, brilliance as angels. Absolutely. So the angels don't really throw me off because I can just imagine he's a pillar of fire with, in a heavenly vision. Uh, he's just got to assume angels come down with God every time God comes down, right? So he's just, maybe angels were there, maybe they weren't there. Um, eh, doesn't bother me that much. I don't see too much of a deal between the 32 and the 35. I think the differences are pretty easily explainable. It, and I know we hit on guys that there's not really any public discussion still at this point within the church of, of the first vision. But Clay, you made a, you made a note when we were talking about kind of putting this together. You made a reference to the DNC that, that comes early enough that probably should, at least should get a mention. Would you mind, uh, just kind of helping maybe the listener draw a connection that maybe it's there, maybe it isn't. I know Chris, you're going to push back against this, but, but throw out, uh, Clay, the, the DNC scripture that we're talking about. Sure. Um, one way to reconcile this in my mind, I, I, I mean, quickly, there's three ways to reconcile, right? Uh, either Joseph made the entire first vision up or he saw it in a heavenly uh, vision. He saw it more of in his mind's eye or spiritual eyes, and that's kind of what we're kind of working through. Or the third one is that he actually saw exactly what most members think he saw, and over time, over different accounts, he's developed more of a uh, feeling uh, a safe feeling of giving more details and more emphasis on certain parts of the account. So in 1829, DNC 20 was written, and it in verse 5, 4 and 5, I believe it mentions that uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ um, to the first elder of the church, which we know is Joseph, uh, forgave him of his sins or gave him a remission of his sins. And so that's the first hint that Joseph makes, and this is right out of Rough Stone Rolling, and um, that uh, Richard Bushman uh, suggests that this is a hint, that Joseph is hinting at the 1820 uh, account, that his sins were forgiven him. And we also know that Moroni had um, directed Joseph, uh, I got the exact words here, um, let me see if I can find it. We that you need to be careful not to proclaim these things or to mention them abroad. So I imagine that was when Moroni was in his room in 1823. So if Joseph had kind of this veiled um, caution from Moroni, this veiled threat, like don't talk about spiritual things, don't procl- proclaim these to anyone else, don't mention them abroad. And he enters the you know 1829, 1830, and he's still thinking maybe I should tell people about my first vision of 1820. He mentions it in DNC 20, just hints at it. In 1832, he gives a little more information. 1835, he gives a few more details. He gives a second person in 1835, and he mentions angels, and he mentions Satan. In 1838, he gives a lot more details and goes into more physical description of the two personages. So I can see myself as Joseph being told not to mention it, really wants to kind of tell people about it because it's part of the growing church and he wants to build some theology. Um, starts hinting at it in 1829, mentions it more in 1832, and then builds this and develops more of a theology all the way up until 1842. Right. What do you guys think? Right. So the issue is is that lots of critics point out that between 1820 and 1832, Joseph is completely silent. And that 
publicly, he's even quiet longer than that up until the 1838 first vision. But, but as you're pointing out, Clay, there's at least a, a possible hint in section 20, verse 4 and 5 of the first vision. I think so. Definitely. Possibly. Um, I, I think something else that's important to remember is however Joseph saw the vision that he had in 1820, he didn't seem to, well, for example, he tells his mother that she, he knows that he, for himself that Presbyterianism isn't true. Yet later in the 1820s, she joins the Presbyterian Church with uh, Sophronia and uh, who's the other one? Alvin, maybe? And then Joseph himself uh, considers joining the Methodist Church in 1828. So if God told him in 1820 that all the churches were not true, why is he seeking other churches? I'm not sure that I'm not sure that he understood the magnitude of everything that happened in 1820. And so as he retells the experience cautiously, privately, to just one or two people, I think it's also developing in his own mind as well, the importance of it. Yeah, that's interesting, Chris, because I know we have documented evidence, not that Joseph joins the church, but that he's on the rolls. Like they're they're at least counting him as somebody who's in attendance regularly. And and you're right. I mean, if, if Moroni is saying like, or if, if Jesus and God are saying, don't associate with any churches, and he goes back and tells his family the magnitude of what's just happened, and yet none of them seem to follow through with that. Yeah, it seems odd, doesn't it? If God just told him that none of the churches were true, yet his mom takes three of her kids and goes and joins the Presbyterian Church. Yeah, Presbyterian dad, dad's church. the only one who listens, right? Dad doesn't join with anybody. He just stays home and doesn't go to church on Sundays. Yeah. Joseph Sr. and Joseph Jr. don't don't uh, join the Presbyterian Church. Joseph Sr. never, you know, he kind of downplays organized religion anyway, just like his dad before him had. We probably ought to hit here, maybe just a, a brief mention before we get to the last account, which really doesn't add anything to what we're doing. Um, how old was Joseph Clay in this 1835 account? How old does he claim to be in this account? Okay, at the at the end of this 1835 account, he does say, I was about 14 years old when I received this first communication. So so the 1832, he's saying he's in his <laughs> 15th or 16th year. It looks more like 16th, which would make him 15. The 1835 account, he's saying he is 14 years old, right? Or is he in his 14th year? I was about 14. About 14. So maybe even 13 and a half or whatever. Maybe just a several months shy of his 14th year. So, so Clay, you're saying that the 1835 account points to Joseph as, as the age of 14 or about 14 years old. And I think it's interesting because the critics have for a long time talked about the discrepancies in the first vision accounts. And one of the discrepancies they've talked about is the age of Joseph Smith and pointed out that in this 1835 account that Joseph claimed to be 17 years old. But as you just pointed out, He's talking about when the, when the vision of seeing God the Father and Jesus Christ happened, he was about 14 years old. Only later in that document does he make the comment that, that another vision happens when he's 17 years old. And it's really apparent by reading the text that he's talking about Moroni. And so I think we should just stop and pause for a second because I think all the listeners who have been swimming in these issues, they just kind of write it off in their head that one of the discrepancies in the first vision accounts is that Joseph gets his age wrong. And I think it's at least important to note that Joseph is fairly consistent within six months to a year off as a 14-year-old having this this vision. He's pretty consistent in how old he is. Uh, That's a really good point, Bill. Really good point. I can read that part. Um 
I was about 17 years old when I saw another vision of angels in the night season after I had retired to bed. I had not been asleep. So he's obviously talking about Moroni. And if a critic is reading this, it's only one line apart. And so it's an easy, easy way to throw people off. And, uh, I mean, it doesn't work. Yeah, in fact, Clay, you take out one period and you have, I received this first communication when I was 17 years old. And so without the period in the middle of that, that phrase, you could just highlight and, and put some eclipses around both sides and you could easily make it look like that's the case. Right. Especially when you throw in the angels that are there. Right. It is interesting as you just read that, that when he's 17, he talks about angels in the plural. But from our understanding is that Moroni shows up in the singular, which makes us wonder, you know, this 1835 account talks about angels. Um, does it talk about, you mentioned angels. Does it talk about angels when he sees God the Father and the Savior? Or is it just in this Moroni section afterward? No, it's both. But that's how they could tie in a 17 years old. So here, let me read it word for word, right? So he just saw Jesus Christ. And I saw many angels in this vision. I was about 14 years old when I received this first communication. So he, he's clear that he saw angels in this first vision. But then he says, when I was about 17 years old, I saw another vision of angels in the night season after I had retired to. So it would be easy to tie in the age, try to get the age, throw people off with age, but because of the multiple angels. Yeah, so I think he's he's clear that he saw angels in the first vision. Yeah, so, the, so the age is pretty consistent. Um, I, I do want to ask you, Clay, angels doesn't find its way into any of the other accounts. Do you have any thoughts on either why it's in this one, and maybe it does tie back into Joshua, the Jewish minister, or, or perhaps maybe any thoughts you have on why it's it's taken out or not shared in the other accounts? Like, does it have any relevancy to to being evidence or not evidence, or what are your thoughts? No, maybe, you know, if he was talking to Joshua and he felt he was, a devil was inside him, um, that would, we obviously covered that, that, that he wanted to convey that in his journal as well. But what if he needed to be kind of be more spiritual than Joshua and out Protestant this guy or out uh, religious this guy? And so not only am I going to cast a devil out of you, but I'm also going to tell you I saw angels in my first vision because angels exist and they come around and they're godlike. Maybe he just was adding another um, embellishment to the first vision because of the audience he was talking to. Like, like this idea that both of us are claiming to be prophets, but let me share where I've had heavenly visitations from a multitude of spiritual beings, and let's see if you can top that. Yeah, and maybe Joshua said, oh, so you saw God and Jesus, huh? Anyone else? Oh, yeah, man, I saw heavenly angels too. And then yeah. later when yeah. he's telling the writing in his journal, the scribe, he remembers, okay, I told them that this is, you know, I was, I was trying to make a point that that's how God communicates. He has heavenly people up there with him. I was trying to make a point. I was trying to help the guy out because I just cast a double out. So I was right. telling him this spiritual experience, this private spiritual experience to show him that, listen, I really have God in me. I'm really, I'm, I'm really the prophet, not you. I mean, you just said the same thing, but we're kind of walking through this. Yeah. And, and do you think like, the fact that he doesn't mention the angels in the other accounts, does that, does that, do you feel like that hurts his credibility at all? Or do you feel like it's reasonable to kind of leave that out? Or do you think it's important enough that for some reason it's odd that it's not in there? Me personally? Yeah. Yeah. You personally. Um, I think it was problematic for me a few years ago when I first heard about the multiple accounts with you guys. 
And once I dove into the actual accounts and read them myself, I could see, I kind of put myself in Joseph's shoes and, and why would I add something three years later that I didn't add in 1832? And why would I add more in 1838? Well, it's because we all sat in a big room and we kind of were uh, talking about the theology and what we need to, uh, to develop as a growing church. I'm, I'm fine with some of the inconsistencies and um, between the accounts. I'm fine with it I, because I've looked at the historical record. Joseph Smith papers are awesome. You can go in there and read, read his handwriting. Right, right. So no, I'm not, I'm not hung up on it. Yeah. Is there anything else in the 1835 account that catches your eye that you think we got to hit on? No, no, I'm, I'm ready to move on. Good. So let's, uh, let's do that. The, we already talked about the 1838 account. It's put out kind of as a, as a goal to be the official history of the church. Do we know when the 1838 account becomes official? Like we just talked about this. Then we, did we say it goes into the Pearl of Great Price in 1950 something? What was the year? 1880 is when it becomes scripture. Right. 1880, it becomes canonized. 1851 is uh, published in England. Right. right. As a Pearl Great Price. And it, is it Franklin Richards? Uh-huh. So Franklin Richards in 1851 publishes it in England. That's the very first time the first vision becomes like completely public knowledge out there. And 1880, the church canonizes it. I, I would... Uh, uh... I would say that no, it was probably in the Times and Seasons 1842 was the first time that the saints are reading about it. Before then, it's just, um, he's just telling it to one or two people. But in 1842, in the church's official newspaper in Nauvoo is when the first, is the first time we read about it in detail, that 38 account. Gotcha. So 38 accounts recorded in 38, shared in 42 in the Times and Seasons, put into the Pearl of Great Price in 1851 overseas, and then becomes canonized in 1880. And then I think it's also kind of important to point out that it's not included as a missionary conversion tool uh, until 1961. 1961. Wow. I mean, that that's so strange to hear that because, I mean, when the missionaries came to my house in 1990, December of 95, when the missionaries came over to teach me the first discussion, I mean, that's what they led off with. It's, it's that God calls prophets and we have prophets today. And here's the story of Joseph Smith. And as soon as they get done telling that story, they're making the assumption if anybody's going to feel the spirit, this is where they're going to feel the spirit. And then they ask you if you want to get baptized. Yeah. I mean, to, to bounce back to the early church, it's very, very surprising to me how many times we don't hear about it. For example, when the Book of Commandments comes out in 1833, which was the uh, which preceded the Doctrine and Covenants in 1835, there's no mention of the of the first vision in that or the Doctrine and Covenants. The church's first newspaper was the Evening and Morning Star in Missouri. There's no mention of the first vision, and then later in Kirtland, the what was it called, the Messenger and Advocate, no mention of the first vision. Um, the time Chris, Jesus is what? Chris, I'm going to jump in on. You're saying in the Doctrine and Covenants, 1835, originally printed, wasn't the lectures on faith also included in there, right, from the School of the Prophets? It was, and it's not included in that. But but there is a but one of the lectures does talk about the nature of the Godhead, with God the Father and Jesus being distinct personages. Right. That's. I mean, if you were going to lay out your theology and and build a theology in lectures of faith, what a perfect time to talk about the first vision. And, and you mentioned, Chris, the 1842 Times and Seasons, but the Times and Seasons actually starts publication in 1839, and it's only then, you know, two and a half years later 
of of issue after issue after issue coming out that this account makes its way in. Yeah, the church uh, in the official paper in Nauvoo begins a kind of a serialization of its history, and it doesn't lead off with that. I mean, it takes a couple of years before they get to the first vision. It's just it's fascinating that it's nothing. It's something that was not well known or well spoken of, and just it's it's really I think it's just really interesting. In fact. I, I'm not sure we know this completely. I'm not sure we know all the facts, but it seems like the first vision doesn't start being even widespread discussed in our church until Joseph F. Smith. But, you know, he was Joseph's nephew, and so you can see why he would uh, maybe uh, retell some of his, uh, 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 you know, some family history. Brigham Young, in none of the, uh, you know, he spoke for, what, 50 years? <laughs> he didn't ever mention the first vision that we know of, at least directly. That is interesting. Right, second prophet of the church, and he and he's alive. Probably, I think he's alive longer than any other prophet in the restoration in this dispensation. And he doesn't say a single word about Jesus and the Father coming to show themselves to Joseph in the first vision. So yeah. you guys are, are you guys kind of pointing at the the idea that this first vision developed in its in in part of the theology, just like just like temple endowment evolved in its. Uh, teach you know in, in its aspects. Priests I'm saying just as Joseph, just as Joseph, in my mind, didn't understand the depth and the complexity of the first vision. Neither did the church as a whole understand the complexity and depth of it either. That's beautiful, and I think it also plays into what Clay's saying too. That for whatever reason, for whatever reason it is, Joseph seems hesitant to have the even after he's talking about it, 1832 on, he seems really hesitant to have it be part of the public persona of Mormonism and the prophets immediately following him also seem really hesitant because, because you have to at least acknowledge that Brigham Young's aware of the first vision because, because it comes out in 42 and you've got all these other things going on with, it just seems like he would, it would be in his mind. And yet for whatever reason, he doesn't feel comfortable ever speaking on it. Right. Yeah, I, I picture these guys getting together and talking the way the three of us do. You know, it's eleven at night. I'm laying there. You shoot me a text. Hey, what do you what do you think of uh, what do you think of this? I picture Joe. I picture Brigham and and Heber C. Kimball and Harley P. Pratt and these guys sitting around. And I don't think the first vision was really something that they were kicking around and talking about. I think they were discussing other developing themes in in Joseph's theology and not the first vision. It's just mm-hmm. so interesting. It wasn't something they were discussing. And yet today the church uses it as the foundational story that we tell. It's interesting too, the Book of Mormon when it comes out in the, um, it says here the introductory material to the Book of Mormon. Um, there's nothing printed in that that remotely suggests any kind of earlier visitation. And so as you're pointing out, whether it's the newspapers, it's the Book of Mormon, it's, it's the critics in the anti-Mormon works, it's, Joseph in his own preaching. It's the prophets who soon follow. It's, it's just, it's, I mean, other than him hitting at it a few times, writing it down and keeping it personal, it's just not out there. It's not out there at all. What's the, what's the reason behind it? What's the reason behind putting it as our foundational, um, as, as a part of our foundation of the church and then pushing it in 1961? What would be the purpose behind bringing it right to the forefront? Well, for me, because I'm a convert, I remember as a 17-year-old, when they told me Joseph Smith's story, his story was my story. I was seeking. I wanted answers. I wanted to know which church was true because the missionaries are telling me, here's, you know, we're claiming it. 
And I want to know if, if that's actually the case or if some other church out there is. And I'm relating to Joseph Smith. I feel like it's almost a call to all seekers. Anybody who wants to know additional knowledge, Joseph was able to get it and you can too. And that's really empowering to somebody who's wanting answers. Right. Good point. Great points. There are some, there are some very obscure references to, uh, to this that is just, it's fascinating. In 1854, Orson Hyde says in General Conference, quote, some may say, if this work of the last days be true, why did not the Savior come himself to communicate this intelligence to the world? Because to the angels was committed the power of reaping the earth and it was committed to no one else. Interesting. It's almost like he's not, I mean, that's where you would talk about the first vision if you were familiar with it. He's almost questioning why there was no first vision. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, there's several several quotes that... What year was that, Chris? That was 1854. Hmm. 1857, Heber C. Kimball, November 8th, quote, Do you suppose that God in person called upon Joseph Smith, our prophet? God called upon him, but God did not come himself and call, but he sent Peter to do it. Do you not see? He sent Peter and sent Moroni to Joseph and told him that he had got the plates. 1857. Jeez, that's a long time in between the Wentworth letter and times and seasons where everyone would have seen it. Right. In the critic... I'm going to read one more. 1863, John Taylor. How did this state of things called Mormonism originate? We read that an angel came down and revealed himself to Joseph Smith and manifested unto him in vision the true position of the world in a religious point of view. So here's why I'm struggling, because I know what the critic wants to do. The critic wants to paint this picture like, man, there is no first vision, and these guys aren't aware of it. But if we're going to be honest, right, I mean, the church has already published the first vision, it's already, it should already be common knowledge, at least, at least in informed circles. And yet these guys seem like they're just clueless to it. I mean, it's, it's absolutely in the times and seasons in 1842. I mean, I'm asking, I'm throwing this out there. There's no kind of conspiracy theory that the, that that's a creation after the fact that, the, that it wasn't in 1842, but we, we now claim it was. I mean, there's real copies of the paper, right? I, I want to ask, is there a connection between some of these guys getting excommunicated? And teaching this because it sounds like they're rejecting it. How could they not know of the first vision? So if they might be pushing back on Joseph and say you never saw it, rejecting it. Or uh, well, the quotes I'm reading are from apostles: Orson Hyde, uh, Wilford Woodruff. Later becomes a prophet. Uh, they were. The, wasn't anyone that was John Taylor, Oliver, or something. Right. No, no, it makes sense if Whitmer's publishing it or something, or uh, right. Simon's writer. But uh, yeah, we're <laughs> way late. These are these are quotes from the 1850s and 1860s. Right, and these are Quorum of the Twelve. I'm just telling you, these guys were not talking about this in the 19th century. It was not being talked about. Which which also tells me Joseph is not talking to them about it. He's just not, even privately, he's not, even though he's acknowledged it, and it's not like it's it's a, a later creation. It's already done. It's already been talked about. He's not making a big deal of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet the church has. It, Clay, playing to your point, like you, you have this idea in your mind like that the angel Moroni warns Joseph not to talk about it. And Joseph seems throughout his entire life to really play it down and to essentially not talk about it almost not at all. Do you do you ever like wonder like maybe the church overstepped its bounds? And maybe I'm phrasing it the wrong way. I'm not trying to sound, you know, like I'm I'm, you know, pushing against the church, but is it possible that the church in order to to grow and to convert people created this as its, I don't want to say created it, used it as its foundational story when if Joseph was here today, he would have preferred us not to even use it and not to have it be 
spoken of as, as a common story? Sure. We, I think we have a history of trying to separate ourselves from mainstream Christianity. We wanted to, I mean, polygamy is a good example. Um, other, I, I think the first vision is a good one to, to start using in the early 1900s and 50s and 60s and correlation period that, hey, we're different. We're going to separate ourselves from the rest of uh, American religions, and this is how we're going to do it. That's where my mind was going as well. I think one reason we weren't talking about the first vision in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s is because we were talking about something else that was far more important to us, right. which was plural marriage. But after that goes away at the turn of the century, I mean, it seemed like maybe we needed to relook at our roots and maybe go back and kind of reestablish what we wanted to be as a church. And if it wasn't plural marriage anymore, what other remarkable, unique thing could we, uh, well, I don't want to say brand ourselves with, but, you know, proclaim to the world. It seemed like the first vision was probably, it probably naturally became part of the narrative because we stopped talking about plural marriage. Yeah, you needed priesthood, you needed apostasy, rest, apostasy restoration, and you needed uh, first vision to tie it all together. And so they're like, well, we know of Joseph's encounter, his accounts, let's lead with that. And in the Utah period, that just wasn't as important to us as plural marriage was. I just, plural marriage was everything in the, during the Utah period. Yeah. It just, it just strikes me that Joe, if, if we could talk to brother Joseph today, I almost wonder if he would prefer that the first vision not be part of the public campaign to grow the church. Like that's a story that is so sacred that he would have preferred it not even be part of the the advertising we do to grow ourselves. I think that's a fair position to uh, to take based on what he did while he was alive. Yeah, I mean, he if, if Brigham Young's not talking about it and Joseph's not communicating to him very much about it, or at least telling him not to not to say a word, it, it does anyway. It just strikes me as interesting that Joseph during Joseph's life it is so minimized and and today. It is the absolute biggest part of how we how we tell our story. Well, how we process it. Here's another one that blow your mind: is that his mother didn't talk about it. You know, she writes a book, a really famous, awesome book called uh, Biographical Sketches. Um, It's phenomenal. It's a really expensive collectible book at this point because in 1853 it was published. Orson Pratt published it in England, and there's a famous story about Brigham Young calling it a tissue of lies and asked the saints to destroy the book, which, as you guys know, has never really worked well for any group of people when they say, let's, you know, let's grab the books and destroy them. But he asked the saints to get rid of the book, and so very few survived. But in that book, Lucy lays out her family history, and that's where we first read about the Joseph's leg operation and other cool things. But it's interesting because in that book, she lays out Joseph Smith Sr.'s visions. He has seven of them in which she refers to five of them. She refers to two of her personal visions, but not Joseph's. Orson Pratt does enter. It, it is in the book because he he puts it in there, but it's not in her draft. That is that is interesting. Now, this is the book that becomes Joseph Smith's histories by his mother that you find mm-hmm. at Deseret Book, for instance, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, after, after Brigham asked everyone to get rid of the books, um, Joseph F. Smith decides in whenever it was, the nineteen early 1900s, before 1910, that it was... Yeah, it wasn't anything bad in there. We'll go ahead and use that as a church, and it's still in print today. Chris, my mind and Bill, my mind keeps coming back to the 1961 missionary correlation or missionary um, training. 
you know, that was under the David O. McKay correlation period, right? 1961. So, Chris, how do we find, how can we get our hands on some 1961 missionary training manuals so we can see how were they framing it? Was it part of the first discussions like you and I gave, 80s and 90s? Or they weren't probably discussions at that time, but did they lead off with the, you know, the first vision? Because I did in 94. I remember doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, you and I taught the, the pamphlets that came out in 80, I think when they make the change, 84, is that right? When they made the change from the memorized missionary the discussion? Yeah, to the six pamphlet ones that had the picture right. of Christ on the first one? Mm -hmm. Where you just kind of taught a concept, but actually we, a lot of us ended up just memorizing them anyway because you're teaching the same thing all the time. But before that, right. they were memorized, and before that, I don't know that they were that organized in, when you're talking about 1961. Chris, I'm sure we can, I'm t what I'm saying is we can, I'm sure we can find some, uh, where did they meet? In the Lion House, right? In Salt Lake. My father-in-law served in 61. So I'd like to talk to him and see, yeah. you know, what do they train him on? But we gotta be able to find some materials that were somewhat correlated, right? The only thing know. I've got here, guys, is just the, the document which says in 1961, the official missionary plan of the church required all missionaries to use the story of the first vision in their first lesson as part of the dialogue designed to prove that the father and the son are distinct personages and that they have tangible bodies. So that that's all the info I've got on it. But you're right. It'd be interesting to know what, what the actual instruction was to those missionaries because it's the first time they're saying, let's start using this story across the board. Right. I just find it fascinating that for it's only been 70 years or so that we've been using the first vision of missionary work. That just is... So incredible to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's real quickly just hit on the 1842 account. It, it doesn't really have anything to add. The 1842 account is what we call the Wentworth letter. It's a, it's a letter that Joseph Smith is writing so that it'll be published in, in the newspaper. And, and essentially this, this, uh, account, it says here that Israel Daniel Rupp requested from Joseph Smith a chapter on the Mormons, which was for a book he planned to publish containing the history and doctrine of religious organizations in the United States. This was part of the Wentworth letter. Now, the Wentworth letter is interesting for a lot of reasons, but but one of them that is not interesting for is the first vision. All that they do is essentially uh, size down the 1838 account and put it into this letter kind of using the same language, using the same ideas in the same uh, ways in which the events transpired. But a couple of things that are interesting, maybe just a quick note in this Wentworth letter is, is the, the first time the church officially says that the Native Americans are the primary descendants of the Lamanites and that the Lamanites are the primary ancestors of the Native Americans. And we've obviously walked that back in the DNA article and also in the heading of the scriptures that we use today that came out a couple of years ago. But it is interesting that at that time, I mean, the church was claiming officially that the Lamanites and Native Americans are one and the same. But otherwise, the Wentworth letter doesn't interest. Doesn't the Wentworth letter also contain the first, the, the Articles of Faith? It, it does, and it is, I should at least note here, then since you brought it up, in, to, in today's Articles of Faith, there's this idea that, you know, we believe in, that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. And then number four says, we believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are first faith in Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. In the original one in the Wentworth letter, number four started out by saying, and these are. 
so that number three, the way that we were saved through the atonement and by obedience to the ordinance of the gospel was solely through faith, repentance, baptism, and gift of the Holy Ghost. It's not until we get really heavily focused on temple ordinances, which happen very soon after in Nauvoo, that the articles of faith need a change to allow for something additional to be added. Again, a side tangent, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but um, it is at least worthy to note it is considered a first-hand account of the first vision, but it just doesn't add anything new. Um, and, and we probably should throw it out there. I know, I know the secondhand accounts we don't want to spend any time on, but there are secondhand accounts. I'll link those in the podcast notes. You can go read those. I do at least want to ask, just generally speaking, was there anything of note that you guys noticed in the secondhand accounts that we should just like throw out there and, and say this is different, or was it pretty much just a rehash of the things we've already talked about? Diary of Alexander Nebar said that Joseph had said he went into the woods to pray, kneels himself down, saw a fire toward heaven coming come nearer and nearer, saw persons in the fire, light complexion, blue eyes, a piece of white cloth drawn over his shoulders, his right arm bare, while another person came to the side of the first. So light complexion, blue eyes, the other stuff doesn't really uh, add anything. But I think that's important. i throw that out. That's a specific, specific detail. Or this dude, Nibar, or maybe Nibar had blue eyes. <laughs> He's just one. hey, yeah. Otherwise, too, he may have thrown it in. Do, I, I just want to go back maybe for a second because I want to make sure we touch on this. We talked about the 1838 account that God the Father and Jesus Christ show up at the – essentially, it, it, it sounds like from the way the vision is described, they show up at the same time. Did you imply, Clay, that in the 1835 account, doesn't one of them show up and then, then the, like the Father shows up and then the Son shows up like slightly later? Right. That's okay. what he says. That's what yeah, and so there's this idea of maybe a discrepancy. If we want to nitpick, maybe there's a discrepancy of when these folks show up. But like you're pointing out in this Nibar account, when we get some detail on knowing the Savior's eye color, which is interesting because David O. McKay years later is asked about what the Savior looks like. And David O. McKay says the Savior has hazel eyes, which which I find interesting, that there's this contradiction between prophets and this dispensation that they, they don't agree on what the Savior's eye color is. Maybe David McKay was colorblind. He, he might have been, or maybe Joseph's colorblind. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe one of those three. Maybe they weren't close enough to, you know, really tell for sure. Plus, you had a lot of light and stuff going on, too, that could have been distorting things. Right, right. And again, I think sometimes if you, even if you and I were to meet somebody once, which if you and I were to encounter somebody one time and then be asked, you know, a week later, two weeks later what their eye color was, I don't know how often we would get it right either. Yeah, someone embellished it. It was either Nebar or it was probably Nebar. Oh, what else did he tell you? What else did Joseph tell you? Ah, oh, he told me so much, man. You wouldn't believe what he told me. Well, what else? Uh, Savior has blue eyes. You know? <laughs> you see someone just throwing that out there to make it sound like they were closer to Joseph than they really were. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, I guess maybe kind of wrapping up, um, thoughts from you guys, like, like, where do we go from here? Is this something that Again, people are leaving the church over this. This is one of the foundational issues for why people leave when they, when they, for those who struggle with history. Um, your guys' thoughts, how do you make it mesh? Do you think it's really an issue? Do you understand why people find this to be difficult? I mean, your thoughts? Well, out of all the sticky and messy issues in Mormon history, this one to me, at least me personally, is, um, it's not the hill to die on. 
to, to maybe that's not a good use of words, but um, I think that you can. The critics have plenty of things in the in the discrepancies in the first visions to say, yep, yeah, it's none of it's none of it's none of it's true. But I think there's enough consistencies through the different versions of the first visions for you know friendly scholars and faithful members of the church to say, I don't see a, a big a big issue. I would uh, I would agree. I think if you have an issue with the idea of multiple accounts, because you may have read it in, in uh, bullet point in the CES letter, and I I've I've had an issue with it years ago, and I I think you need to go to the re- the sources, read them, really try to think it through. I I I think that's the best way to handle it. I uh, I think you need to read past the church's essay on it because I think the church essay. Uh, makes some uh, statements in there that I wouldn't agree with. Um, I th- they seem like they say somewhere in there that the church has published these multiple accounts over the years and made it sound like it was intentional and they had, they were uh, you know in front of this and weren't playing catch up and the leader spoke about them and church published these and I I I think that's a little disingenuous to say that they've made them available to everyone. Not until I think recently. that's pretty glaringly clear with the Joseph Fielding Smith and the incident of the Scotch tape. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> so you owe it to yourself to go to the source, is what I'm saying. Don't just read the essay and be fine with it. Spend some time. If you love this church, you love the gospel, spend some time figuring it out, getting your hands dirty. Reading things in context. Right. Yeah, I I really appreciate all that. I mean, we haven't even talked tonight. You know, I know some of the apologetic answers out there is is the idea of playing on memory. Um, again, I think that's a valid reason. I know the critic would argue that if you saw God the Father and you saw Jesus Christ, that you just would remember that. But I think you also have to keep in mind you're dealing with a 14 year old kid, and if, and if this 14 year old kid really did see what he says he saw, like. Cut him some slack for being a 14 year old kid. I'm with you too, Clay. Like I feel a lot of weight towards the idea that you presented, which is that that Joseph is counseled not to talk about this, and he he slowly and softly puts it out there more and more as he you know feels like okay, they're, they're you know God or the angel or whoever is letting me say a little more about it. Um, but it seems like there's also while the critic wants to say there's evolution in his theology, I also see evolution in his comfort level. To talk about it, and so I think you made a really good point with that, um, Chris. I know you know the history really well, and and I think you two are both pointing out like to get into the sources, to see where, what was the setting for these accounts, to to realize that some of these were just private journal entries, or he's just having a private conversation with this crazy dude um, who also claims to to be prophetic, and and so that conversation may be couched a certain way because of that situation. And it's only the 1838 account that, that the church is prepared to put forward. But as Bushman points out, Joseph may not even be the guy behind putting it together. It may have been Rigdon and uh, what's the other guy's name? George Robinson, right? Um, Bill, how do you feel about it personally? Personally, on, on the, the first vision, I'm with you guys. I don't see this as a make or break issue. I see contradictions. I see reasons to struggle. I can certainly see and, and I validate those who, who leave because this is one of their, their biggest issues. But when I look at all of it, I just feel like there's no way to really pin down why the changes are there. And there's both good reasons for those changes and bad reasons for those changes. And so at the end of the day, I just strike it up to say, look, just like everything else, man, there's evidence on both sides. 
and I'm just not going to let this issue be the one that sends me, sends me out the door. But again, that's me. We all think differently. I, again, I validate those who struggle. I just personally, I can't leave over the first vision. It's just not, there's just not enough, not enough evidence that Joseph's just evolving in his theology and, and changing it solely for that purpose. There's other valid reasons for why he's doing it. And so I, I still hope that Joseph interacted with the divine. Did he see two beings? Did he see one? Um, I'm kind of like you guys now that I've seen this Bushman quote. Like I'm now giving some room in my heart and mind for the 1832 account to be the genuine one. And perhaps Rigdon and Robinson are embellishing the 1838 account because this is going to be the one the world sees. And I think too, I don't want to get off on a tangent, Chris, but you could speak to this maybe for a moment too. History is tackled differently in their era than it is ours. In our era, history values getting down to the absolute facts and telling the story as close as we can to the exact way it happened. But when you jump back into history in the 1800s, there was almost like an understood permission to embellish stories and to tell stories in a way that taught something rather than made the absolute point to give the truth. Like maybe Paul H. Dunn was born in the wrong century, you mean? <laughs> Paul, Paul, Paul H. Dunn would have fit in really well, I think, in the 1800s um, and earlier. But we do it with Washington. We talk about Washington and the cherry tree. We we embellish stories, and and that's the way history was approached then. And I know the critic or the person who's in the middle of a faith crisis doesn't want to hear that, but I'm just saying that there's a there's a certain cultural perspective that we struggle in the here and now to leave behind to really try to understand these people in their own time and place. And and I think we can cut Joseph at least a little slack and not even so much him, but those after him in the way they decided to tell his story. Very well said. With that, guys, um, I hope that you'll take time to, to not only listen to this podcast or to listen to critics talk about the first vision, but as Clay and Chris and I are all kind of trying to point you to, um, go dig into these sources yourselves. Go study the various accounts. Look at the context of each. And, and then it's my hope that each of you guys will give some room, some room within your heart and within your mind to allow that this idea that Joseph just perhaps, just perhaps he actually interacted with the divine on that spring morning in that grove. And, uh, and it's our prayer that the Lord will warm your shoulders. God bless you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.